morning and welcome to the 25th episode of ProShip ParcelCast. Today we are going to discuss international shipping, including the when, the what, and the challenges, as well as how to deal with the ever-changing landscape of international shipping. I'm Katie Wonke, a customer success specialist here at ProShip, and I'm joined this morning by Rodolfo Gomez, one of our ProShip's experienced integration engineers, as well as Justin Kramer, vice president and co-founder of ProShip. Good morning, gentlemen. We'll start off with Rodolfo. Can you tell us a little bit more about your engineering work history and your experience with international shipping? Yeah, uh, thank you for having me here. Essentially, I've been in the logistics industry for about four years now, and I've been at ProShip for uh, one year now. Essentially, I got introduced at, with international shipping at my previous employer, where I gained a lot of knowledge, learning about essentially all the weird nuances and stuff, especially dealing with stuff with the uh, European Union and all the edge cases there. Perfect. Thank you. And now I'll take a, a quick, but certainly a more detailed introduction from Justin Kramer himself. Justin? Sure. Hey, uh, Justin Kramer, co-founder of ProShip, VP of Sales and Marketing. Been in the market for 23 years now. International has always been a part of it, but really the ever-changing landscape of small parcel is something that I'm always excited to talk about. Katie? Great, thank you. Now we can jump into the topic of international shipping. And first, I think we should start off with talking about some of the challenges. The question I wanted to ask first is, what is a harmonized tariff for the Schedule B codes? Basically, all merchandise that, that moves around is gonna have to have a tariff code. And the nations have gotten together. They've agreed upon a lot of them. These codes can be anywhere from a few digits to 10 digits or more. And really this just tells customs agencies what goods they're about to receive, whether or not it's clothing, whether or not it's electronics, whether or not it's just ingots of raw metal. And it makes it a lot easier for the customs agents to be able to clear those goods and understand what is leaving as well as what is coming into their country. Can you talk to me a little bit about the commercial invoices and the challenges specific to those invoices when shipping? Now, some of the major challenges with commercial invoices is really figuring out how to move the data, right? Most companies are gonna have a material master. This is something that tells you where the goods were created, what they are, should contain a proper harmonized tariff code, should contain their value, and these, this information needs to be moved through the enterprise software stack such that it can be automated to be put on an appropriate commercial invoice, B13A, or something of that nature. Rodolfo, you want to add to that? Yeah, sure. So in my experience, usually with dealing with the commercial invoices and stuff like that, customers usually wonder who's going to be paying for the import taxes. There's usually two flavors of that stuff, usually DDP where the shipper pays for all of the taxes and also the shipping costs. There's also DDU where the shipper pays for the freight and the consignee pays for the import tax. In the past, I've seen shippers usually go straight DDP, but then later on they start realizing that they are paying too much in regards to import taxes and then later on switch to DDU where the uh, consignee pays for the import tax. Well, we had mentioned also along with the Schedule B codes, so some specifics for shipping internationally from another North American country. Can you tell me what a B13A is and when you would need that? Many countries may have specific documents that they use for export. 
In this case, because ProShip is a very strong North American provider, we encounter B13As uh, whenever Canadian customers are shipping out of Canada, usually for values greater than $2,000. Now, this number changes, so it's something that if you're listening to this podcast a couple of years from now, that $2,000 Canadian dollars may actually have changed by then. So always make sure you're working with your shipping experts to figure out what the actual thresholds are and that you're working with a system that will allow you to adjust those thresholds so these documents are produced in an automated fashion. Can you help us understand how the B13A is different than when you need a commercial invoice? Because a B13A has that lower value limit, usually you always need a commercial invoice anytime you're leaving a country. Now, that being said, there are other types of commercial invoices that you may not realize are that. For example, if you're shipping postal to any IPC standard, International Postal Commission standard country, you actually fill out either a CN22 or a CN23 based upon the value of the goods or how many goods you have or the type of service that you're using. This being said, anybody who's actually received goods directly from China and you notice there's a... uh, you, you notice that there are line items directly on there telling you what's gone out. That's actually a CN22. That is the combined shipping label and effectively the information that would be on a commercial invoice. So you've probably seen that show up at your door if you've ordered certain things that made their way from overseas. So you probably experienced these even in your normal day-to-day life. But really what it comes down to is anytime something is leaving the country, it's going to have to have some type of commercial invoice or equivalent. So then that leads us into another topic that comes up a lot with international shipping or something you hear when you're trying to get package over from another country is clearance or having automated clearance. And many listeners might be aware of the ACE or AES filing. Can you tell me if there's a way for shippers to become exempt from that filing? Yeah, I can answer this one here. So there's two main flavors of it. There's one called a no EEI 30.36, which is usually meant for shipments destined to they're destined to go to Canada of any value, um, not including vehicles. Those those filing that type of EEI on your uh, shipment documentations uh, uh, makes that shipment exempt from EEI or from a ACE filing. Also, with there's another one called 30.37a. So if your total shipment value is less than $2,500, that makes your shipment exempt from requiring ACE or AES filing. There's also one more point I want to make here is that putting these exemptions on here is kind of required for at least most of the carrier software that ProShip interacts with to go through, or else uh, most of the time we get an error for that kind of stuff. Okay, so then if the shipment is not exempt, when must the shipper file the ACE or the AES direct? Usually, if the total value of the goods in the shipment exceed $2,500, ACE filing is required. If the shipment is going to, for example, Venezuela, no matter the value of the shipment, ACE filing is also required. Okay, and Justin, is there anything you could add of when else? Uh, this could be required for ACE or AES? Yeah, actually, I want to I expand this a little bit. Understand that, that if you're only shipping one or two international shipments a month, a year, you don't need to automatically file. However, if you are shipping you know, several a day, using your shipping software to automatically file can save a lot of time. 
Because if you're only doing one or two a year, you can go to aasdirect.gov or whatever the appropriate URL is, and your logistics managers can probably file for those ITNs on their own. Okay. Also, while they're there, they can figure out a lot of, uh, they can get a lot of good training, which will also help to help them to understand some of the other things we were about to talk about, such as if you are shipping a licensed good, such as aerospace, department of defense, or equipment that might be considered dual use, you really want to make sure that, that you are checking with customs to make sure that you don't need a license to export that. So uh, that falls underneath the whole, I need a license to export this. And by the way, some software may fall under that as well. So if you are shipping internationally, this is where you need to try to start putting together a person that is a more of a compliance officer that can help you to understand or help help keep all that knowledge in one spot of when do we need anything other than just a commercial invoice or when do we need to file, you know, if that $2,500 ACE AES direct limit changes so that that can be taken care of as well. So we kind of touched on the, the changing requirements. You mentioned that if people are listening to this years from now that the $2,000 might have been a changed amount since then, but what a large topic around requirement changing was, was the Brexit, international shipping with them. Um, are there any scenarios or edge case scenarios that would have been associated with Brexit? Yeah, I can answer that one. So in the part of the UK, uh, Northern Ireland is technically part of the UK, but they still follow EU trade laws. So that means there's, so there's technically part of the EU. So to usually handle cases like that in shipping around that area, the easiest way to get around is usually just by uh, checking the zip code information and just determine that whether it's in Northern Ireland or not, and then apply your uh, business logic in there for handling EU type shipments. So then Rodolfo, that kind of leads me to maybe you'll have the answer for this next question. What would be an EORI number? So what is it and when does it apply? Yeah, so the EORI number stands for Economic Operators Registration and Identification. So that is, so think of it as like an employee identification number, like here in the US for what the businesses have. Uh, it's usually meant to be for if any type of shipper or merchant wants to do business inside the EU, they would need to get their own EORI number. So with EU shipping, often we're, we'll hear something related to or called the harmonized tariff codes. How has uh, the EU changed the harmonized tariff codes recently? That's actually pretty simple. I mentioned before when I introduced harmonized tariff codes that they're, they can vary in size and that size varies in accuracy. And what the EU has changed is they used to, they used to allow smaller codes or the more general codes. Now they're requiring at least a six digit code in order to accept those goods into their country. Rather than just a general, I'm shipping electronics, they wanna know that you are shipping TVs. They wanna know that you are shipping VCRs as if they still ship those nowadays. But you know what I'm saying? They wanna know the class of electronics that you're actually shipping so they get a, a more granular understanding, again, of what's leaving and what's going into their countries. Before we discussed automated clearance, but there's another type, consolidated clearance. Can you tell the listeners what type of clearance that is and how shippers can use it? Yeah, this is really, really gets back to duties and taxes. 
Rodolfo earlier mentioned DDU, DDP, and of course there's like 27 different variations of who pays what taxes, VAT versus import versus whatever. And a lot of those, especially if the shipper is paying for the taxes, they can get a significantly lower tax burden by moving an entire set of shipments across the border as if they were one shipment. This process is referred to as consolidated clearance. Now, you can do this yourself by, you know, we see a lot of customers in Canada or in the United States where they fill up a trailer and then they clear customs as one big trailer. And then that trailer gets delivered to the induct facility for the carrier in that country. Now, UPS, FedEx, DHL, they offer these services already, right? And what this means is that packages will, you will label them once in the origin country and the carrier will, the carrier will go through customs as one large package, one large shipment, I'm sorry, not package, one large shipment and they will clear that underneath a significantly, normally lower set of tax penalties to clear that border. And then they themselves will break bulk out those shipments and deliver them to the final recipients. So you touched on some of the carriers that offer these services. So when someone might be looking to expand their multi-carrier setup, include more carriers, are there are there others you you know of or are there other types of shipping services that have these international services available for the customer? Great question. Let's be clear, there's a lot of companies that offer this, but the three that come to mind first is going to be UPS WorldEase, DHL Break Bulk or BBX, and of course, FedEx has their IPD, IGD, Transborder, and a bunch of other acronyms that cover that what is effectively consolidated clearance. But like I alluded to earlier, if you're doing enough in a single direction, you're always shipping, let's say, to uh, to Spain, right? You may actually want to use either air freight, ocean cargo, or something like that. You can put together your own delivery chain to create your own consolidated clearance event. That being said, for most shippers, that's that would require a lot of goods being shipped there, possibly to the point where you probably want to open up your own warehouse in that country. So many customers just rely upon UPS, FedEx, DHL, and some of the others out there that will do these consolidated clearance solutions for them. Katie? I know that we covered a lot today uh, from invoices to consolidation, clearance, things around international shipping, touched on carriers and different options that we might have outside of carriers with services like LTL and things like that. So with those who are listening today, though we could keep expanding on this more and more, can we kind of tell more about why this matters to their business or their shipping process and touch on who is responsible for keeping this information? That's a great question. And there's a lot to think about here, but I'm going to try to simplify it. This information is probably being kept by either somebody in logistics, potentially a compliance manager somewhere inside that enterprise software stack. Rather than relying upon people to know where that information is, our recommendation is to automate the movement of that information. So you have one spot for the truth whether that's inside the ERP, whether that's inside a WMS, wherever that material master lives, that's where that logistics person's, that, that compliance manager, that's where they should be working. But you should ensure that you got enough data flow moving through your enterprise software stack 
such that software like WorldLink and ProShip can actively pull that information so nobody at a shipping station, nobody in a store, nobody at anywhere where we're actually going to execute shipping processes has to manually type anything in or even select from a list. This should be very automatable. And I think by doing that, you're gonna ensure that you have greater level of compliancy. You're gonna have fewer packages stopped at the border and you're gonna have a lot better international customer experience by ensuring that you've automated the data flow of all of this information that we've spent the last 20 minutes or so talking about. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions, we want to remind you that you can reach out to ProShip by emailing sales at proshipinc.com or calling 800-353-7774. We hope you join us for our next parcel cast and thank you for tuning in.